0: Everybody. Welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And you can check the show out at X'sforpodcast.com. We have an awesome triple header for you today on another Modern Marvels episode. We're gonna be taking a look at Immortal X-Men number three, New Mutants twenty-six, and iron fist number four. One of the things that's so fascinating about all three of these titles is the way they are seeking to weave together a number of elements of not just their own sort of narrative scopes but of previous writers time with these characters it's really rewarding to see when the marvel universe is stable of creators likes to pay tribute to the like pantheonic work that has come before it just makes editing this show and being a fan and being a listener and being a reader and talking about it that much more exciting week after week and it's why we love making this show for you guys i am so fucking excited today because today is 350 episodes of this amazing show and I don't know that uh, I just don't know that I could put into words how grateful I am for everything all of you have given as listeners as fans as contributors we've had like 50 different people on this show over the years and it's been just so incredible getting to know those of you we've gotten to know, getting to become friends with those of you we've gotten to become friends with. And I'm just so honored that I've gotten to be the producer of this show for 350 incredible episodes to every one of my incredible co-hosts and show co-runners and everyone who's ever been connected to it. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and from the deepest depths of my long boxes. Thank you all so much for the last 350. 50 episodes and I can't wait to bring you guys 3,500 more so let's get on to what you guys have been coming here for for 350 amazing episodes we're gonna kick things off with Immortal X-Men number three this book has been so mind-blowing I've tried to make sure that everybody gets to be a part of it because everybody loves talking about it and this coverage is some of the best we've ever had on the title and I couldn't be more excited to bring it to you and don't forget if you guys like what you're hearing you can always check the show out on Twitter and online at X's for podcast and X's for podcast on Twitter.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comics podcast for dissecting insane timelines that I will be thinking about for the rest of my life. I'm TK, and you can find me dissecting insane timelines that I will be thinking about for the rest of my life on Twitter and
2: Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, you can find me over on Twitter at stevenofwonder, and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star group. Hey
3: guys, I'm Drew, you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at jucifer3, that's at D-R-E-W. S I P H E R three.
4: I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me immolating some Judases on Twitter at, Asleep at the wheel W E I L and Asleepathewheel.com. And we hope you survive the experience. Unlike
1: Mystique. Hearts broken around the world. I don't know what I'm gonna do with this news. Like literally gas.
3: Gas
4: we have all read enough kieran gillen that i think at this time we can clearly state that kieran gillen is a bdsm dungeon dom who enjoys inflicting pain on us because he knows how much we enjoy the pain he inflicts right this is all just objective fact at this point right i do
2: not consent
1: i mean you know i gotta say i think you might have it right uh you know and that also leads me to pointing out that we are talking about immortal x-men number three as we have said by Kieran Gillen with the most gorgeous art always by Lucas Wernick color art by D. Lima letter is V.C.'s Clayton Cowles cover artist is Mark Brooks the design is Tom Muller and Jay Bowen production by V.C.'s Clayton Cowles as well I keep coming back to Kieran Gillen and I know he's gonna hurt me
4: but man do I enjoy the ride I loved this so much first off it's just so stunningly beautiful I can't think of a bad issue of anything Lucas Wernick has done but I feel like he is continuing to grow where I am more and more impressed. We're in that Kassara range, like when X-Force started and like the Kasara stuff was good. And then you got around like the early mid-teens and it was just like, it became like, holy shit, the spotlight. This is stunning. The full page splash of Irene being overcome by all of these possible visions. On a horse. A beautiful, gorgeous page that then by the time you're done is made. Maybe the seventh most gorgeous page of the book. Like it just continues to exceed itself and go beyond and God, the painful emotions on Irene's face on Raven's face. Raven has so many beautiful pained expressions, stunning book all the way through. And then on top of it, it is this densely written gem from Kieran Gillen that is going back and recontextualizing so many things from the past to tie them in better with the new hawks timeline the diaries of destiny and
3: i was a fan of lucas Varnak even before he joined the, the x office just because he was like a twitter person and he just was like doing some cool mcu designs like x-men mcu designs that i thought like were super cool and so when he joined the office it was super exciting to see all the pages are good and there's no bad page but it also at the same time seems like with every page they're getting better
2: yeah i love love his visuals so much he pays tribute to the characters so well. Zero complaint. Digital page
1: 10. If you guys don't have the book open in front of you, it is the page where Sinister briefly shapeshifts into Mystique. And it's a page that has stood out to me in reading this because the expressions are so extreme. Sinister's maniacal amusement, Raven's rage, and then her disgust at all of them. Compared to every other face that you see in this book, it's this moment of really over over-the-top heightened emotion that upon first seeing it I almost thought was a mistake or just like lazy art and then as the book cohered for me it made me realize that Lucas Vernick is so good at doing these like sexy natural low-key expressions that when he gives you a moment even if it's a little hammy and over-the-top in terms of look of a character having a really extreme emotion it heightens things in a way that I really didn't realize how effective it was until I consumed the book as a whole.
4: So I had a very similar experience reading it on dead trees. It's on the right hand page. And so turning the page, you can't not see like sinister with boobs and mystique head like it's <laughs> there to like grab you in the periphery and it looks isolated like it looks goofy and like a mistake or it looks like and you know, mystique's a shapeshifter. So my first thing is like there's some like some fucking weird shenanigans are happening here but then like i turn and i read through the left page and i get to it in the right page and even having been previewed it like it's not coming as a surprise like it hits and strikes because as part of visual storytelling as part of you know the paneling layouts progression when you get to it as intended the big giant hammy shit-eating grin resonates at a different level because of all of the muted subtle frustrations the angers the emotions you're getting on all of the women's faces on emma on raven on irene even on hope on that left page right before it and then you get sinister which is this like fake emotionless like over glee because he's taunting he's doing so much in an image that isolated and out of context looks ridiculous
1: and the fact that that hypes raven up and then she's doing it with other emotions and it's these two shape changers with no specific face that they have to have at any given moment just going off and i think it also kind of ties into what we see with just the like pure suffering of irene in this issue the threads in this are this low-key simmer that we've got with the council at all times of just they're trapped with these secrets and they've got to figure out what to do and everywhere around them there are these heights of intense emotion and extreme event i mean like they are just dealing with the ramifications of everything at such a high level at parts, the tension of that is really driving for the whole issue. I mean, of course, you're going to read the whole thing, but like the degree to which you're like, I desperately have to know what is on the next page is such an exciting part about this book overall, but really this issue.
4: We know how the first 12 issues are going to be structured. We are going around the Quiet Council, and we're going to have a POV that gives us internal revelation and unique perspective from a different member of the Quiet Council every single time. And... So far through three issues, we have gotten Sinister, Hope, and now Irene. And one of the interesting things with Irene compared to the other two is that Sinister and Hope are two characters that Kieran Gillen in the past has done a tremendous amount of work with and on, right? Kieran Gillen wrote Generation Hope for the first half of that series. You know, the Sinister as we know him to the Victorian-esque, sassy as fuck Sinister was really defined in Kieran Gillen second volume of uncanny x-men he's coming in and giving us probably one of the blanker slates of a character because she was dead for so long and irene but one whose legacy has been strip mined and overhit to ridiculous extent in her absence and recontextualizing it in a way that makes all of that richer i compare this or think of it in terms of rogue one the, the star wars film and i think rogue one it's not my favorite star wars film it's up there but i think it's probably the best star wars film i probably like the best picture and not just because it tells its own tight complete story with emotional stakes but because it recontextualizes the other films around it to make them better what it does with the amazing darth vader scene at the end knowing that that happens a mere day or two before the darth vader obi-wan battle in a new hope having seen the darth vader luke skywalker battle in empire strikes back it takes those and puts them in the greater storytelling perspective of these amazing lightsaber battles and says no 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 this is darth vader toying or not wanting to go full force because he would have fucking slaughtered his son this is darth vader taking his time and letting the obi-wan battle linger because there's no threat to him there because his power is so high because if darth vader wanted to flex he would murder every motherfucker in the room and don't you forget it and that recontextualization that allows you to have an amazing moment in a film but also adds depth to the stories around it like that's what we got here with what he did with the destiny diaries and what he did with her timeline and the way that she laid those things out and why some of them seemed silly and fucked up it made them all richer and added greater depth to the character in this story and retroactively in those other stories i can go on and on about how much i love kieran gillen's work this is one of my favorite monthly titles i am reading across anything and it is absolutely my favorite title coming out of the x office right now
1: yeah it's a real high point for not just the destiny of x era but i think Hoxpox as a whole this not just this run but again this particular issue because it's finally giving us a moment to breathe with the idea that destiny is back alive and active but in taking that moment it's a very intense and complex to swallow moment yeah i
3: agree like fitting new ideas into things that have already existed because you're not changing what happened before you're just making your narrative work within the story that was already created so that it expands the whole the whole narrative
2: this was a really great story for destiny we're getting a lot of her own agency back i'm really excited to actually see what she actually goes through what she sees you know her inner dialogue because i don't really think this has been done before as far as i can ever remember
1: Nothing as robust as this, for sure.
2: And she was one of my favorite members of the Brotherhood back in the day, so this is giving me so much more insight to her, and like something to really, I guess, glomp onto
1: one of the most exciting moments in Inferno was the meeting between Destiny, Mystique, and Emma. Understanding, as we had been coming up to that, that Emma is playing her own game and has control that people had not been assuming that she had. And seeing her as a real player in the way that I think a lot of times we take for granted that she is and the writing doesn't actually give us and it's just the love for the character that lets us say in any given situation that she's the one in charge. But often she's not done the justice of getting to, on panel, take the actions that means she's the person in charge. We started to see it with the three of them meeting in Inferno. And this conversation between Mystique and Emma, where they now have a sort of familiarity, a very slight bit of possibly allyship. Really, it's just both agreeing that Charles sucks at all times. But, you know, just the take for granted that I am appropriately scared and let's just try and help your wife was both really sweet and really spoke to who all of these characters characters are and how they interact just again a shining moment for me in this series
4: so i loved the emma and raven dynamic in this book because we have these two characters that are very different but you know they do have a certain something in common because they're two women who are obsessively controlling they have to be control freaks about what's going on in their lives because far too often men have tried to control them or take control or eliminate their Autonomy or their agency. And so they have to be this way. And, you know, Raven is a character that, you know, in her Irene dynamic, one of the things that makes it so compelling is that writers have done a good job of ensuring that Irene is the only character she really ever defers to. Like some writers every now and again try to make that forge or, you know, maybe rogue, but then like you could never trust it if she was being manipulative or not. But Irene is the only character that she consistently will defer to. She will push back, assert control over everyone else. And so seeing her, you know, going to Emma for help, this is her way of expressing trust, even if it comes off as very, very non-trusting, like because no one else would even be invited into that room. Like the fact that she brought Emma into the room, even if she's still trying to super control and fight her on everything is her way of expressing trust and vulnerability to er or being vulnerable around anyone other than Irene, which to me, you know, gave you this this deeper relationship between the two characters now than, you know, what was just in the text. I loved getting to see Emma in these moments and what that kind of meant that she is the one Raven chose to allow in.
1: And that she's kind of kind you never know with emma not just like you never know because she's emma frost but also with who's writing her and what else could be going on what else emma could be scheming like the stoic tenderness was the thing that i was just like this is a kieran gillen thing like nobody could write this
4: my head canon of emma is that she's a teacher above all else right she is a compassionate person who has been forced this is why i love her secondary mutation of the diamond form she has been forced to put on this hard ex exterior because the world will fucking take advantage of her at any standpoint and her powers allow her to know that this is how leah got her x-men black emma frost issue was by tweeting out having a viral tweet go on about her take on emma and scott and why she loves emma and scott as a couple because emma spent her entire life reading the thoughts and and pulling the the sick sexual things off of every man around her every time she walked by them and then she met scott and and that that is the basis of their relationship that you know, that she sees something different in him because he does not objectivize her that way that every other man does. And. Uh so you know to me the what comes off as scheming or harsh in her is that exterior but inside she is a compassionate teacher first and we see that most often when she's around children or when she's around other female characters when you take men out of the room she does not need the diamond form she does not need to put that up
2: I really actually I loved all of that yeah I just yeah I lived for that too like TK said it really does depend on who writes her though I think that in you know the modern era in the Krakoa era you know there this take is a little bit more I guess widespread but you never know because we're so used to seeing her being written as the person who has to say either the hard thing or the most hurtful thing and the most hurtful thing is not really fair or justifiable for her character because it was always constantly straight male takes on what a powerful woman like how she would speak and and this just feels so much more elevated to me. It makes her feel like a real person. You know, she is pretty much my favorite character. She's the reason why I read comic books. She's the reason why I'm here. But this whole series so far has just been such, you know what, not even series. Just the Krokoan era has been such a love letter to Emma Frost. You know, we. I'm glad that you guys mentioned Leia because I think that she has had probably my absolute favorite take on her. And between her and Duggan and now gillen like this has been just the most amazing source of emma material that i've come across and i say this as a fan of her since 2004
3: i was thinking back to their last interaction in inferno and it kind of was not on the best terms like but also not on the worst terms she's sympathizing with mystique because she sees that her partner is like you know sick bonding with her so like woman bond because it's kind of just like she's forgetting about what happened before and now she's just like no like we have a situation here
4: Yeah, I agree that we have gotten a really good take on Emma in the Krakoan era. And I don't think Duggan gets enough credit for that because, yes, we talk about how much we loved her in Marauders, right? And Marauders gave us boss bitch Emma, who was also mentor, teacher, you know, sororal friend to Kate. But at the same time, he was very quietly deepening and giving us mom Emma over in Cable. And we were just quiet. Quietly digesting additional depth and sides of this character in cable at the same time that really helps to keep her full formed and not the, you know, bitch on heels from the cis male gaze that has been her problematic side.
2: That's a good point. Like, Duggan really did give us different layers to her character throughout the different books that he was writing. And she was problematic before, and she was just there to say the hurtful thing and she did that so often to the women around her that there are times when I was so excited to see that she was going to be in a book and then she was just kind of cruel to people. Emma has been so inconsistently written when it comes to women. You know, it's often forgotten that she is, you're right, she is a teacher first and foremost, but she's also a feminist and an ally. And one of the things that really, really gets muddled was her relationship with Kate you know after astonishing you know they had such a great ending then Kate comes back and then all of a sudden in this weird way they're like kind of enemies again they're in they're antagonistic towards each other and while some people might say like oh well that's believable I don't really see that I don't see why Emma would continue to make cruel comments to her fellow woman who she shared such a just extremely emotional moment where one was sacrificed herself to help save her and the rest of the world so this, this has just been just such a trip and I'm really grateful that she's being handled so much better now because part of part of being an Emma Frost fan is seeing the potential you know part of being a, a fan of any character is seeing the potential that that character has and seeing you know what the writers do with it and for so long you know we see this powerful woman and we love her she's this uh, essentially a queer eye con you know in so many ways and and she's just mean when she doesn't need to be and while we eat that up sometimes it's not actually the most enjoyable thing to read and I again you shouldn't love every single aspect and every single thing your fave does but it was getting to be a bit much where she couldn't I, identify with any of the women on the team and she can only be there for Scott like it just it just made her his side piece a lot of the time and now she's just her own character
1: I like it the- that difference between her you know sometimes sometimes you do need to see a character make a decision you don't agree with but you're talking about really just kind of a dereliction of duty on the part of the writer to put her in context with other women in which she has positive interactions and it just is this catty thing over and over again which is funny and there are a lot of great moments in that stuff but if it's just kind of a one note thing it's not like oh I see her issue she can't connect with other women it's this writer thinks it's really funny when she's nasty, and it is now muddling the important, edifying
2: aspects of the character. Right. She can say something that is true, that is correct, and then it gets lost in the overall message. This this era it has made her so much more accessible to everyone else, you know? Like, she wasn't trustworthy to so many fans. People hated her as a hero, you know, even though she's been a hero for 25 plus years, uh, because she's just always mean. And now it's, you know, she she was mean with a purpose, and now we're seeing like she's able to just let her guard down around so many people. She can be just a human to people now. So
4: one thing is in our in our mononormative society, I think a lot of readers really needed Hickman to like solidify the polycule because they could not they could they had like the Angelina Jolie problem that they could not dismiss the idea of her as homewrecker even if it had been decades at you know that she was with Scott at that point or even if she had you know literally more issues under her belt in a relationship with Scott than Jean ever did it didn't matter people needed that people needed to kind of see that it was okay but there's far too many writers who, who struggle with a character like her I'm a fan of the Bendis era overall. And I think she is probably by far his weakest character in that run. I think he did not know how to write the majority of her relationships with characters, Kate being chief among them. He's <laughs> not the worst. There are a number of writers whose takes, you know, I would just say flat out, I just dismiss like, you know, you look at what they did to her in IVX. And I'm like, nope, that didn't happen. Nope, that's not. No, I don't even I don't even oh, take that I... as part even of- I don't even take that as part of the canon of her character. I don't even nope. know what nope. I don't even know what you're nope. talking about talking
2: about that's (laughs) not
4: no that doesn't even shape like i don't even have to recontextualize that
2: no xavier took that memory right out of my head because i don't know at all what you're saying (laughs) ivx what
3: there's a difference between reading someone and just being me and i feel like if a writer can't read then like they can't make emma read then you know it's just like it doesn't work like you then you just make her a mean bitch which she's not she will read you for filth
1: and drew that's such like a perfect encapsulation of why she's a gay icon because when written best they are reads they're not just her walking around being nasty it's this person being like i'm so informed because i'm telepathic that i see the parts of you that i can laugh at because they're 100 true and there's a way that you can do that sometimes where you're like man she didn't have to like kick bobby when he was down about the fact that he's obviously gay and not out but like she's not wrong and there are other times where you're like oh she's just coming off like she's making fun of a sad closet dude it's a really fine line and great writers who walk it inform that like the gays love to see a good read
2: absolutely I think that was a good point
1: the two other really big things I want to talk about and I want to just kind of like give you guys a chance to decide where we go one direction or the other we got to get to this future timeline that a- we get a glimpse of and then I just want to talk about the really wholesome and important queerness of this issue in the month of pride so you know take it away on whichever one you want to start with
3: one of like the, my favorite parts of this entire issue was we actually get to see a glimpse in a way what destiny's sees when she's going through her visions. And we get this cool double page spread of all these visions and kind of what the future of this, like the books could be with the next double page being one of those timelines and how they play out. And it involves like so many kind of weird, interesting aspects of like history and what we know. And it's like, we got Phoenix Exodus and fighting uh, Sinister. And I just love this imagery of like in space, we have this larger than life Exodus basically holding this spaceship and he just like rips it open and it's like sinister and it's just like that imagery I love Phoenix aspect that it's like literally this huge god you know and it's just like little sinister who's like you know this joke of a human being laughing in the face of Exodus
2: I definitely want to know more about that I have so many questions you know like uh, is is he the full Phoenix is he part of the, the Phoenix force core is he large that powerful because you know all of a sudden something shifted and people you know believe in him we now know is part of his power set like he oh my gosh that was just such an awesome moment and you know sinister just god laughing in his face even as he's like being swallowed is just so oh my god he's it just speaks to the lunacy of of that character as well we are probably not going
1: to revisit this as a definite possibility for Krakoa I feel like this is just a really cool Moment to show us, yeah, how Irene's powers work and what kind of stuff she's working with in this moment. But it was so funny to me all the stuff we've looked at for the possible futures of Krakoa through Moira's eyes and how this is just none of that. Nothing that none of these little moments that uh, that uh, Irene is seeing correlate really to the ones that we've heard about coming up in the in the other futures that Moira's had. I also want to point out that at the moment where this timeline has the gene Corsairs, which is what sinister is calling himself now we have another point called unity and my read of it is that while this looks like exodus and exodus might be a big part of how this is happening this is a lot of mutants combined together mentally like building each other up the phoenix force is obviously in the mix i feel like that multi-mind thing is part of the exodus belief power so this is a very weird enormous mutant circuit hosting the phoenix force is how i read it and that's just like the little Subtle just bits of text that got me there, and what an expansive idea it put in my mind is such a great example of how solid of a writer Kieran Gillen is, and how much he can impress you with two or three pages and give you stuff to think about that he might not really even put into play in a huge way in his story going forward. But the fact that he took this time to go over it shows you sort of all the tools that he's working with and what he's willing to do for the story.
4: Yeah, and I mean, as a big Kieran Gillen fan, I'm feeling- pretty pretty confident that we're going to see this again at some point in some iteration or from some perspective because he doesn't just throw away things or just put in things that are cool like this is everything is this is part of something he's a a very densely plotted you know well his thoughts are well constructed and tied together now i thought this was really interesting the phoenix exodus because he's such a fascinating character to put in this based on his power set and sinister has this line before he gets swallowed into the fiery. void vortex of Exodus's mouth. uh, You know, it doesn't matter how many trillions are bloating you up with belief, you're just another loser again, and again, and again. And the idea that if Exodus had gained the Phoenix force, that he would be flying around the galaxy, the universe, gaining worship of entire planets and solar systems, making him more and more powerful to this point where there's something more than just Exodus Phoenix in him. And I didn't think of it as a mutant circuit, but he, it reminded me more of the the Starlin infinity and eternity designs where, you know, you have these characters that are like half character, half silhouette with, you know, just kind of like galactic nebulous space in coloring in their shape that, you know, if that means that he reached some level of godhood like that, if there was some like phalanx leveling up as we, we learned about like collectiveness back in Oxpox, but that there was definitely like a greater level there exodus and phoenix together had leveled beyond somehow in this expanse potential future beautifully done because the art is not i mean we're getting colors and styles here that are extremely dissimilar from the rest of the book but also fucking stunning yeah, just an amazing glimpse into a potential future here although we can probably say it is not the track that we're going to be on because the one thing that we do know is coming up out of all of this is judgment day which is like 17 fucking nodes away
1: <laughs> right i definitely think that we'll see elements of this again but i think this timeline is probably we're not in danger of the way like we really spent the first part of hawks fox being like how are they going to get to something that's pretty similar to one of moira's futures that they're going to have to fight i don't think we're going to see this stuff in a, in a cool way i just love that he's like i had all these ideas and you can see them and like imagine what it would have been like but i'm actually going to go in a different direction and you'll see parts of this develop in other places that's a very kieran gillen thing i also love that he ended with like such a classic his sinister idea which is just him screaming i am the only thing that exists you remove me and you're all gone that was such an important part of his reconceptualization of sinister and to put that in there in this moment that again probably doesn't have huge bearing in and of itself but does remind you that there's still a core to sinister that is pure solipsism and that is one of the huge issues with his involvement in all of this it's It's not just all the crazy, mad science stuff. It's that he really doesn't think there's anybody else but him. And just his grasp of character and how he reminds us of all the stuff that he knows is just so expert. All right, guys. So just all I got to say is this book was the gift for the Pride season that I never could have expected. I knew that I wanted, but I never really hoped to get. We had a Marvel Voices Pride issue come out the same week, which was full of really beautiful stories. And I love Pride. I love the chance that it gives for queer writers to tell stories about characters that they love or new care introduce new characters. But to have a book that is so empoweringly queer and shows this beautiful relationship between two women who love each other beyond life and death in a way that is so unconditional, it really, you expect the pride issue every year. I didn't necessarily expect that I was going to get this no matter what. I knew we were going to see Mystique and Destiny be together but not in this sort of way. And it really it choked me up a lot. The art really enhances everything it was just so beautiful and what a gift
2: yeah it was oh my gosh it was really really lovely to read a lot of the reason for for why i enjoyed it is because it just treated them like normal fucking people which gets lost in so many ways because them being treated like normal people in a relationship just people who care about each other is so important you know like we have all of these stories where there's coming out just uh, navigating homophobia And it's sometimes it's nice to just have it normalized in something that we're reading, just have the characters be have the characters there and just in your face and just loving each other like any other normal freaking couple would be, you know, you could you could literally, like, in a sense, replace them with a straight couple. And it would it would just, you know, I, I don't I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Even those panels in the flashback of Destiny in like kind of the more masculine clothing with the suspenders and Mystique right, in the yes. nighty And, you know, Irene is like the detective. I mean, this is her Sherlock Holmes woman. Yes, She's yes. like the typically male role detective and Mystique comes in all sexy. and But, you know, they're they're both women. It's, it, yeah, it's fantastic.
2: Absolutely.
3: Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Steven. That is like kind of my main issue with the Marvel pride is that like, I appreciate the sentiment in that, but I find that all of the stories revolve around being queer and just like, and the, the, the stories are very surface and there's no variety. I want variety. And this is what, like, this was my pride issue because this is like what I'm asking for when I say I want more LGBTQ content is like literally this issue, not like, you know, going to like a mutant pride parade. I don't care about that. I care about seeing like, you know, alternate futures and like how this couple is going to cope with that, you know, and like cope with the future where they might not be together and like you said i was thinking you could replace this with like legion and blindfold and it could still be the same story um,
2: yes yes that was such a good point like it could literally be legion and blindfold but you know it's not it's this queer couple being treated like real people being treated like humans we're all
1: out a long time significantly older very comfortable the stories that we're going to identify with are queer people in their element um i feel like this we really get to enjoy this particular story and this is for us in pride how how wonderful i feel the same way in terms of what i get out of the marvel voices pride but of course for so many other like younger people people who aren't necessarily as familiar with the comics who the the queerness of the pride issue is kind of their intro to certain characters so that they get into the comic i get what they're doing and it's lovely if people if it resonates with people that's so great more que- queer people in comics fandom is so welcome but yeah i mean for for people who are both long-standing comics people who are aware of the queer stuff that's been there under the surface and needing to be dealt with and also whose own stuff has been dealt with. Getting other types of stories is really important and getting quality ones is so rare.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm still bitter that there was no North Star story in that entire issue that just came out. But you know what it is, what it is. (laughs) I really think
1: that North Star is being held when they can really actually deal with the implications of resurrecting their mutant baby. And I think it should be, because I think that's a big old can of worms, I think it could be a really great thing for somebody to write, but it's gotta be done well. I don't I don't wanna read a schlocky yeah. dad North Star story.
0: Everybody, Nico here again. New Mutants is like the X title that brought me in. It was the whole reason I was like, Jonah, we got to do this show 350 episodes ago. It was the thing that brought Nathan to the series like 150, 200 episodes ago. It has just been so exciting to see our love of New Mutants reflected in the love of the creators that are currently working on it. We have had nothing but rave reviews for this incredible creative team, and we hope to see so much more from them going forward. Check out our coverage of New Mutants 26. Music
5: Hey everybody welcome to another exciting segment of x's for podcasts i'm nathan you can find me online at desert away at twitter that's right desert like in the age of apocalypse on twitter where you can find me pining over how hot moonstar is in this and old lady yana mm-hmm. oh, with that warlock arm sword mm-hmm.
6: hello it's me steve and you can find me on twitter at howdy that's h-o-w-d-y-d-u-d-a
7: and that makes me raven aka dame red red you can find me float Around the internet, so you know, just don't worry, come
5: <laughs> And I guess that means we're talking about New Mutants twenty six, where we are bouncing around from limbo to limbo. We got ourselves some limbo queens in this issue. <laughs> Two of them, actually three of them, because there's like Yana, old Lady Yana, and Maddie Pryor. <laughs>
7: Two point five <laughs>
5: We haven't gotten Amanda Sefton yet, but I believe she will be coming. She had better be coming because she was also a Limbo queen. She kind of disappeared at the end of the Nightcrawler series. Limbo would be a great place for good old Jermaine Sardos. Hey, who brought us New Mutants 26? Uh, New Mutants 26,
6: Best Laid Plans, is written by Vida Ayala. The art for the main story is by Rod Reyes. The art for the flashback sequence is by Jen Dersima, with colors by Ruth Redman. Letters by VCs Travis Lanham and production also by Travis Lanham.
7: And design finished by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. An amazing team, honestly, because I didn't realize this was a, a regular length comic book. I thought for some reason this was like a 30 page, maybe a 32 page comic book.
6: Yes. Listeners, we were talking just before starting about how this feels like, like this is like an epic full story arc. It felt like a 30-page, 40-page comic and then I counted them up and it is 22 pages plus the two flashback pages at the end. So it is remarkable how much story, character action and development is fit into just one regularly issued comic book by this team when other comics in the X-Men line come out and it takes five, six issues for any kind of a story to take place.
7: Yeah, the pacing in this is incredible and the use of the Page space is done so masterfully. Yes,
6: there's a great mm-hmm. economy of storytelling, and it's not like Claremont where it's all full of word bubbles either.
7: Absolutely, it's one of my biggest foibles. I have to have good pacing in a book for it to even like really you know, hit those levels that I need, like keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's like the art clicks, and the story clicks, and the pacing clicks, and it's just oh, love it. The
6: labors of magic, this story, yeah, so far, is my favorite New Mutant story since the very original run. It's no coincidence that it is basically like redoing slash a sequel to the Magic Ileana and Storm series, which I also love very deeply, but it is two issues in it. it is just such a literally epic, in the sense of that word, plot. It is just is beautiful, it is far-reaching, it is emotional, and it has extremely high stakes.
5: They really have a grasp on New Mutants history, right? Danny and Rain and Maddie being in the story with Magic is amazing, Obviously, Maddie has those ties in with Ileana in ways that you, you don't necessarily think of, right? Uh, Ileana does a great job of describing exactly why she picks and gravitates towards Maddie Pryor and this issue. They gel so well. Danny obviously has been a strong figure for Ileana, and for this story, Danny's inclusion makes perfect sense because the old Lady Yana story part of it felt a little bit about like where in the in New Mutants 32. There was the original run. There was, it was in the middle of the Shadow King saga for all of its strengths and weaknesses. The, issue 32 introduced a, shock a which was Storm's ancestor that Danny and Ileana had run into through a time-traveling accident with Ileana's stepping disc. This story right here, she's got her stepping disc caused time distortions again, and she runs into an old lady Ileana Diana, who very much remind me in tone, a lot of Bashake.
6: Yeah, and that's funny that you brought up Ashake because you told me about that. And she reminds me of like exactly the older Storm from the Storm and Iliana magic series. <gasps> oh, She's the member of the party who originally came and survived the death one by one of the New Mutants party, just like in the original Storm series that Magic did. One member survives to become an old white haired magician and in the original Storm and here it's Magic herself, which itself feels like it's tying into Inferno with the parts where magic meets her younger self and gets yep. a chance to rewrite her history. There's there's so much. There's yeah. so many layers and so many parallels between the original New Mutants run and Inferno and the Storm and Magic and Aliana series. It's really an incredibly clever and deft way to pull all these continuity threads together. Not to tie them up, but to turn them into a fresh, new story. In, yeah. Into into gold. really. And it's something that pushes all of these characters forward emotionally and brings closure to some while opening up new avenues to others. I I cannot emphasize enough how incredible this story is. Also, with regards to Old Lady Magic, do we think that her outfit is extremely Rasputin from Powers of Ten? Because I do. She doesn't have the ruby slippers, but I love seeing that outfit come back because the design is incredible.
7: I love this costume so much. I'm not even going to bullshit. I love Old Lady Ileana's costume so fucking much. It fits. And it feels like magic. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're just calling her Old Lady, you know, Ileana or Old Lady Magic, and you y- no, it's like, if this feels like magic after magic has matured and, you know, been through a lot of shit, this is the hard nature of of loss and, you know, having to go through some shit and holding down responsibilities and whatnot. But I love that she still retains a lot of the Iliana. like the drinking of massive amounts of coffee and and like her just bald face laughing in a demon's face like, ha. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> illy, that's illy. And, oh my god, the, when she flips the demon off, and there's the little chibi face in front of the face. Yes! I, I died that. laughing. That was so good.
6: Yeah, that is really good, especially since there's no reason to censor it. We've seen people
5: give the bird in Marvel Comics plenty of times, even recently, but it's just funnier that way. It is so much better, I think, by seeing little chibi Liana with that face, that little face that she's making. Yeah, <laughs> She looks like the worst part of, like, mm-hmm. To um, be
6: usa <laughs> <laughs> and the, the way that Rod Reyes draws in in that very scene, all of the warlock arts and all of the techno demons, it, like I won't. People have said a million times, I've said a million times how much Rod Reyes approaches the Bilsonkovich mm-hmm. vibe, and you know is one of the only people who draws warlock correctly, in my opinion. But like, it also is so evocative of the tone of Limbo with how these demons are, because they're always like making goofy faces and pulling mm-hmm. things, and like I don't. It has that. It has that vibe that was so prevalent in that era of New Mutants and in that era of that all of the artists were just putting as much like fun and mayhem into the backgrounds of panels as they possibly could and Rodriguez is really killing it.
7: Not only does he capture that very warlock feel but it feels like it it hits the right notes for the demons as well. So there's a really beautiful blend and that's, that could be something that could be like really really hard to do because you know if you lean one way it just looks like a bunch of you know brightly colored scribbles. But if you lean too hard the other way, you're going, are they really affected by the techno-virus or are they just kind of, you know, tribal tattooed? Like, it might not come across as there. But no, they did such a beautiful job balancing everything. Yeah.
6: Man, I'm such a fan of Rod Reyes' expression work, and when it comes to Warlock, just Warlock leaning out of the sword and screaming, ah! And (laughs) beams of light coming out of his mouth.
5: That is the (laughs) The, best part.
6: The the, the colors. The color. (laughs) Yeah, The, The colors, the way the eyes are just, like, white in yellow circles expanding in anger. It's wow. It's something else. What I would say the only weird thing about this issue, the only thing about this issue that was even a minor annoyance, and like honestly, it's not enough for me to have any marks against this issue. I, I loved it. Is that Warlock like never talks?
7: <laughs> he's part of the spell, but that spell takes a lot of energy from both from both Warlock and Ileana. You can almost always hear the tired in her voice, and he's been doing it so long, so hard that he can't even hold a form. He can barely hold the sword's form anymore because he is so used up. So I understand why he doesn't speak.
5: And and I love how Warlock as a sword still even harkens back to Ten of Swords when we're all Ooh. like, how is Warlock a sword? Yeah, how, how
6: is he Doug's arm? Well, how is he Eliana's arm?
5: He's got um. the goofy smile on his face. A lot of parts of New Mutant history, like Rob Reyes has that really, really Sienkiewicz vibe, like you were talking about Steve. And I love how you can have the T.O. virus affect Limbo again, which obviously happened in the original New Mutants run.
6: It's a really good use of the technoorganic virus as an antagonist in this story, especially because like, the one thing that kept them at bay in the past was magic soul sword, and now neither Magic has a soul sword. So it raises the stakes on this particular fight because it's not something that can be solved by just jamming the
5: soul sword into Limbo.
7: Right. I just realized also that we have an all-female protagonist cast.
5: Oh, I'm positive that they did that on purpose
7: i love it because it's it's so non-essential it's it's like it's not one of those names you're like okay we're gonna go in we have to have an all-female cast it was like here's our character here's our story and it like literally took me to this point i'm like wait there are no guys with oh my god that's awesome there's no guys with them that i didn't notice and i didn't care
6: maybe that's why warlock never talked
7: I kind of love this because it shows that you can have female characters on page that don't need to center around what male characters are doing. And, or, or you know, oh my god, we're chasing this boy. What? I like this boy. Like, it, it, there doesn't need to be a centering around men. <laughs> there doesn't need to be a centering around you know uh you know their ideals or their machinations or pursuits of them this is just here it is here's our story there we go and I'm like thank you this is what I've been asking for I still love a little bit more coverage on Madeline Pryor's outfit and I will always say this mostly because I want to see her in new stuff because Ilya's upgrade into the new outfit oh my god that was everything I want to see that Maddie Pryor too But yes, I love it.
6: Yeah. I, I love this new outfit, and I'm so frustrated that we don't get to see the full thing. Like I it's know. just a glimpse over the the sim sword, and like underneath the the pants, it seems to be. I can't tell, but I I really like the gold piping along with the bluish costume. I can't wait to see what it looks like in full. I also love this sim sword. It is like it looks like a techno organic soul sword. It is huge and manga like.
7: I love her crown. I love when her horns. Co- out like we see her when she's holding uh warlock and taking out all those demons i love that her horns aren't overly arched or like you know giant you know demon queen these are like functional but so badass i love them so much
6: and her hair of course is like tied into these little braids that further remind me of the future rasputin (sighs) ah
7: they kept so much of Ileana they kept so much of who magic is and she is still this wonderfully gently gruff old Russian woman (laughs) (laughs) she's so amazing and I love it at all the first write-up page the warlock log I love this. This was more than I could hope for. I thought they were just going to give it a quick explanation on page in a couple of beautifully done panels, but instead they gave us an entire write-up page. And honestly, I got so much more. Yeah, I'm so yeah.
6: happy. It really contributes to that feeling that we had of like this mm-hmm. being like a 30-page epic is because like these unlike a lot of the data pages that have been going around lately, instead of just mm-hmm. dropping kind of ancillary information that world builds or like a little bit of of background data or a couple of conversations that maybe give a clue to the plot but maybe don't this is like directly the meat of the issue like this it it is a dialogue between the two women who rule limbo and it, it it doesn't just explain things it in conversation challenges things that have happened in other books it brings attention to the central problem of Madeline Pryor's story thus far which is being spoken for at the whim of men in her life and not having her own character and it's directly and explicitly talked out on page, challenging the conventions of her story. I love that. Instead of the usual thing that a writer will do, which is dance around the idea, maybe, maybe make an allusion to it. I think the best I can remember is Zeb Wells talking about like being an, a nowhere girl in a nothing place. But like, this is, this is direct.
5: It is within the fiction. It is not. I can see how this goes, having seen Ayala and Reyes be able to work together for so long. And like, this would have been a great five page spread. But I love this being a data page because it lets you focus on the words instead of the reactions and lets you, like, have it all sink in and just solid, plain black and white. You know, no no artistic choices can, you know, make you question whether the things that were said were really real or not. There's no, oh my God, you know, being distracted from the actual words that they're saying by any of the beautiful art. You are just pulled in, sucked in to this, very deep conversation that they're having and I love the, I love it being presented in that way.
6: First of all, I really like Magic being like I prefer tuned into the truth because she sounds insane, but I really like the later on when she says, Sinister Cyclops Havoc, you exist in an orbit that resentfully circles them. It disgusts and Madeline says, I don't need your pity and Magic says, I don't pity you, I was you and that is so impossibly true and I, I love seeing this. I love seeing somebody step up and say like, oh no I don't, I don't look down at you or feel sad for your tragic circumstances that keep coming back and victimizing you further. I remember being you, and we're gonna get free together.
5: She says, you know, Belasco, Sim, and even a version of Kate and Kurt. So I wonder in her mind if sometimes she turns and looks at Kate and still sees Kat.
7: Oh, I I 100% believe she does.
5: The flashback sequence is heartbreaking. It's just a little that
6: didn't exist in the original Ilyana and Magic series, but under the hands of Jandersma and Ruth Redmond, like, returning to this time period with the like period appropriate art and coloring like the flat colors is always going to be like super magical to me pun intended but reading through this whole sequence where even even in the depths of like kitty having been turned into cat and this like hellish persona she still like will give everything and risk everything just for like a second of bringing her friend back even though she knows it won't last even though she knows it's just a chance to say hi to kitty who's been magically enslaved this whole time for one second it's worth all of the torture and punishment that has definitely come.
7: Yeah. Oh my goodness. The you saw the child like hope. In it, and you you could also see like how clever she had to become just to survive. But yeah, like to to see your friend turn into your abuser, but still not giving up hope that your your friend is in there. And yeah, like she came that far just for a couple of seconds, which gave her hope that she could actually break out of this place. She she could become strong enough to manipulate the magic in that place. So it was heartbreaking heartbreaking. Oh.
6: That close up on Magic's face at the very end, where she says, I'll do everything in my power to save you looking at Kitty. It's extra hard. It just stomps on my heart because we
5: know she won't. Like, as much as reyes's art is amazing and I love it, I just I gotta gush about this art team for this backup story. Like, just because the faces are amazing, intentionally drawing and coloring in a style of several years ago. But this team they managed to make it look pretty modern for a flashback to me.
6: Yeah. I yeah. I think it has that I- iconic Bronze Age look yeah. to it because of the like the flat colors, which is something I miss in comics. Like as much as much as like Marte Gracia is my favorite comic co- colorist ever, and as much as like I really really love the way that we've been able to push the technology of color into new and amazing realms, I'll always be like nostalgic for this like era. One of
5: my like the most emotional panels I've seen is just that first panel from the second page where Kate's crying and you know Eliana is just looking so crestfallen because. Because even though she's got a moment with Kate, she knows it's not going to last already at maybe nine by now. I don't know how old she would be at this point, but you know, you know, just the the life this, this poor kid has had to live.
7: She gives that title over because that was a title that was forced on her and the will and whim of men. But Madeline keeps gravitating back to limbo. And that's why she gave it to her. It's like, this is, this is not a place that I chose, but this is a place that you keep choosing. So this need to be yours because this is what you gravitate to and this is something that you need and this is something that you've chosen. That's why I'm giving it over to you because you don't need to be beholden to all the men and machinations that they have in your life. Yeah, Un-
6: under Ayala um, Ilyana has so much emotional intelligence. There's this like cool balancing act too, right? Because I mean like Ayala has to know that Ilyana is going to be written by other writers around on the X office at this time and it's not like, it's not like Ilyana is ever written as a different person. She seems like the same person in every book, but the way that Ayala plays it is that, you know, Liana is somebody who has all this emotional intelligence and is so strong and so brave and so courageous, just like the girl that she was. And this cartoonish, like, exaggerated kind of like, you know, the, the goth jock who is just <laughs> kind of like really brusque and kind of like cold sometimes, but also like funny and seemingly dumb is just kind of like how she interacts and presents herself to the rest of her friends because it allows herself to keep her emotional trauma safe, right?
7: Well, and it's also the the childlike side that she never really got to have because her childhood was literally spent in limbo under Velasco's rule. So yeah, like I think <laughs> sometimes she like especially when she's around kids, like the like some of the the other new mutants who are just coming up, like she tends to be a bit more kid like when she's around children. But yeah, like she she still tends to fill that clown role. But that's kind of why I love her juxtaposition next to the old Ileana because you can still see some of that childlike energy but it's very much tempered by by time and age and it's it still comes across so
5: beautifully I love how Reyes has covered up Yana's boob window.
7: Yeah, it is kind of sexy, but
5: I've
6: actually like always really liked Rod Reyes's take on this particular outfit because Rod Reyes always, Yana is wearing like shorts and then like the thigh highs are kind of like, they're kind of like tights that she wears up to her shorts for most coverage. Yeah, sure. I like it when she's just wearing black panties and like thigh high boots with a boob window. <laughs> of course, that looks hot and Layla Yu puts that right on the cover. So it's not like I even have to be nostalgic for it or nothing.
5: But <laughs> I would agree with you, Raven. It's- It's probably time to cover Maddie up a little bit more.
6: I do think that you're right. Like, she looks extremely sexy in this. It's an extremely skimpy outfit. Like, there's almost nothing there. They're literally walking through the icy
7: wastelands.
6: Yeah. At the same time, she's also not posed in like ridiculously objectifying ways. Like there's no way to not be objectified in this costume, but mostly she's just standing around interacting with people. And I think it absolutely helps that everybody here is
7: non-male. Yeah. I love Maddie. I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. I know Maddie's in this. Oh, please. I was so pleasantly surprised that she was never put in like a really super cheesecake position. It wasn't about, you know just hey let's look at under boob all day they did a really good job of always representing her as a person like there's even a part where like they're walking in and so it's a slightly tighter shot and it could have stopped at just under boob like I've seen artists do oh yeah we've got this slightly close up shot where we're looking at people in the background talking but you know oh we, we got boobs in the front yay but but yeah. on this it literally cuts right under and I'm like thank you that's like that's like really respectful and and it keeps focus where focus needs to be so yeah i was i was so pleasantly surprised well not even surprised surprised but like i was i was so happy that they did what what this team does so well and they told the story from a human perspective
6: Yes, yeah. there's not a single there's not a single shot of somebody's butt taking up almost the entire like frame as they walk away, which something I love in a Sutter bitches work, but is thank- thankfully absent here. And when magic is being like killed or infected by the techno organic virus, the old magic by Sim, there's not a single moment where she looks like she's sexily dying and getting choked. Like oh it my is god, a- <laughs> <laughs> <It> <laughs> is.
7: even look at Colossus. He's walking around in his classic outfit, but he's still like well covered, and he is he is known for walking into a frame and having just the goods framed up like I was I was like
6: is this really Colossus I didn't see his entire
7: last cheek when he walked in Or his giant right? middle bulge. Oh my god, seriously! But like, I, no, I, they they treated it so well, and everybody was like so well done that it, it just made me so happy.
5: And there was a nice uh, blob appearance in that, and also mm. Karma and her girlfriend. Look, Karma can have lots of girlfriends, and that is what I
6: tell myself all the time. Look, when I read her, with <laughs> Danny, it's, like it's just her other girlfriend.
5: I believe that Karma is madly in love with Danny Moonstar.
7: I literally have not seen this character really do anything else so i have no baseline for her actual personality so i can't even tell if she's gonna be good for karma or not but i think karma is like i don't know i'm just i'm just meh about that relationship
6: <laughs> i'm glad karma seems happy at the very least it yeah yeah like that. Uh,
7: well, yeah of course
6: Got little heart things i don't know i don't know if karma's doing that but i like it
7: yeah <laughs> Doug
5: doesn't look over twinkie when he shows up for a second. Warlock. I gotta say, I love Reyes and Warlock.
7: I love the fact that they are walking in tandem.
5: Doug says hi, you know like, <laughs> then
7: Warlock has the same thing, but like, he looks like also he is trying to sell me a used car. Right. <laughs> when they both do the hand on head, it's like, oh my, but yeah, you're right. They, he doesn't look overly twinkie.
6: It's so good to my heart, personally, how much Rod Reyes is drawing rainbow. Yeah,
7: oh my god. Shout out to Rod Reyes for making Blob look so- so fucking handsome like
5: and he didn't over skinny by him. he just right? made him look like a, yeah he looks uh, like the blob the right? blob yeah. but like a nice daddy attractive version of the blob
6: yeah with like right. a really kind of nice forward shirt and the bartender apron
7: beard there looks hot. beautifully coiffed hair like well-trimmed beard like he he looks so nice Nice and clean and presentable and just absolutely fabulous and it's such a positive rep- representation. Like that makes me happy. And yes, I want to see more uh, weighty people like doing superhero stuff. But I also love how much Blob loves his role as bartender and how this is this is his jam. This is his happy. This is where he wants to be. Like that makes me so happy. Like on a lot of levels. And it's taken me a while to like really accept that.
5: Yeah.
6: All in all, just a spectacular issue. It made me feel young again reading this. Like, it made me yeah. feel like a kid reading these comics for the very first time and falling in love with these characters and the deep emotional weight of their interactions and the things that they mean to each other and the fear and the fright of what's to come. It's it's really something extraordinary. And if our listeners are listening to this for some reason and are not reading Vida and Rod Reyes' run on New Mutants, just please do. It's Take been out. it's been one of the best X-Men books yeah. of this era. And and possibly ever
5: also if you have marvel unlimited a lot of the original run together is on there so i promise you if you love these characters if you love the new mutants beat up they knock it out of the park with their characterization reyes he's amazing with the art they often work with travis Landon, who is so good on letters we didn't point it out but the ha ha
6: ha 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 of two magics <laughs> laughing <laughs>
7: has that like little like the very pop art lichtenstein style
6: yeah and i, I, I Lichtenstein <laughs> absolutely stole that from
7: actual comic artists. <laughs> and yes. Thank you. He's
6: probably the person who is best known for doing it in the pop art world. It's beautiful here and it also calls back to the original series in such a nice way.
7: But yes, it's very reminiscent of how they had to print comic books way back in the day where they could only lay down like color dots, basically almost pointillism, uh, in order to make color within the lines that were drawn. So yeah, it was a very old school style, but it still has this beautiful modern take that usually adds like texture to words.
5: If you're worried about with this art, like we've brought up a lot of nostalgia bits but if you're worried about nostalgia because, you know, everybody, you know nostalgia kills. It's amazing how it's steeped in the history and it's also trying to move it forward and trying to make the story go to new places and it's not just saying cool, here's a story of, you know Wolverine and Deadpool beating each other up because of the 90s. Right. (laughs) It is revisiting these stories, finding emotional depth that we always knew should have been there, but haven't been there
7: also shout out the to the last page that art for for the little goblin was so good it was so so good the one where it's defeating the big giant robot and you have you know madeline Pryor in this gorgeous like dungeons and dragons realness kind of outfit that i am probably digging danny moonstar looks so good as a ranger and then rain as a cleric oh ah! It's so good. I love that.
5: I love that. Rain looked like Master Splinter to me <laughs> from Ninja Turtles, right there.
7: I thought she was a werewolf cleric. I can't unsee Splinter. How dare you! <laughs>
5: Rain does look like Splinter at the bottom of the page there, but it's a fairy tale. So it's like this fairy tale. I love any story that's going to have Rain be a rat. That's fine. I'm good with that. That pinup page there too with the the Maddie. That is the only time in this issue that there was a somewhat cheesecake pose, but Reyes did not go full cheesecake like he could have with the sort of like epic fairy tale style art. This fairy tale costume almost covers more, if not actually does. does cover more than her real costume. (laughs)
7: It does, and it still looks very much Madeline Pryor. It still looks and has her feel but yeah not only does it cover more it gives more detail it adds to her I mean she's got a crown she's got accessories she's got good coverage with good boob support (laughs) like (laughs) yes I could totally get behind this being her look for a while even like I love it I love that yes it is a mildly cheesecake pose but it's literally her reeling back charging up a spell that she's about to unleash and you know it's probably gonna level half the fucking field
5: it's the most cheesecakey pose and it's so mildly cheesecake And I appreciate the care that Reyes
7: is putting into like even when they've got the male characters, like they still look hot. They're still the character you remember, and then you kinda go, (laughs) Yeah, I would but it's not like cheesecake the entire time, you know? It's like I get to appreciate them as a human. Beautifully done. I can't believe it was only twenty-two pages, twenty-four pages. Like this this team is just so amazing, and I can't wait to see more from, from Vita and and Reyes and everybody, the letterers, the cover artists, like I want to see everybody do more work. It was amazing.
6: This book is great and I'm going to keep reading it until everybody who is currently on it is off the book and I hope <laughs> that is not anytime soon. It has just been an absolute wild ride. The Labors of Magic is going to be the next arc of New Mutants story that goes down in history as an iconic story. I, I know this. In yeah. 20 years we'll all be looking back at the Labors of Magic
5: as like credible tour of force story and I <laughs> (laughs) cannot wait to read the rest of it it's great to have a new mutants run that feels like it's gonna be epic in those ways that some of the previous runs have been where we won't have to worry about like the problems with say the shadow king arc from the original new Mutants, where it was an epic run they got you know karma back from the shadow king but it's so fucking fat phobic and we're not gonna have to worry about that type of thing with vita
6: the only thing i worried about is that at like issue 97 of vita's incredible run they'll bring it and Rob Liefeld to completely change the story and make it more militaristic for the last three issues and then relaunch it as something else.
7: I will launch something
6: <laughs> into the sun. <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to Danny Lore is going to write a guest issue of New Mutants coming up soon and I'm really looking forward oh, to that. I know, Danny Lore and Vidal Yala are cl- close friends and co-workers and they always back each other up in really cool ways and I'm very much forward to seeing their work. Yeah.
5: I hope this team continues for quite a while week after week. I know it doesn't maybe have the weight and gravitas of like, you know, immortal X-Men or X-Men read in the general overall importance of maybe the Krakoan era, but I think this is one of the best written and best produced books out there. I always enjoy reading what Reyes and Ayala put together and bring out for us. For me, when I think of New Mutants runs, obviously you've got that OG run, but this is up there in importance and weight, and it's not one of those books where in the past, some of the New Mutants books, you were like, they had no reason for existing. This book has has a reason to exist. I'm so glad for it.
0: Alright everybody, Nico here one last time And we're talking Iron Fist here We have been lucky enough to talk to Alyssa Wong We love where this book is going The reinvention of Swordmaster The reinvigoration of so much of Both of these properties in this dynamic Exciting new way, it's been such a pleasure To read, and we have a lot of guesses About where things might be going, and it's really Funny because our guesses become This really deep, involved thing And it's bizarre that on a show That tried to get away from just being An X-Men show, so many of our segments find us talking back about X-Men because it's just really a part of who we are. And even though what we're talking about is Loki in this next segment, we find ourselves talking a lot about what that means for the X-Men. The final page of Iron Fist number four sees Loki in the shadows and Loki has been popping up in the shadows on a number of titles. And we posit that there's a possibility that perhaps this is some sort of plan at play involving judgment war with the redetermination of what makes a mutant a mutant in the Marvel universe. And it's that sort of cross-integration that we love so much here. You know, we started covering the Jane Foster material, not just because she's a favorite of ours as fans, but we could see the potential for Danny Moonstar crossing into perhaps the Valkyrie storyline. We also knew that Jane had information on Krakoa, so there were valuable elements to talking about her story, and now here we see Loki popping up other places. It really has become a great time to talk about not just the X-Men, but the whole Marvel Universe. That said, we're never going to be able to stop talking about the X-Men and man I'm just so grateful for so many listeners over this last 350 episodes and don't forget we make the show three times a week every week currently covering MC2 Mondays modern Marvel Wednesdays and XI4P premiere Fridays with a lot of focus on the Avengers and Punisher on Fridays for a little while it's trying to take a bigger look at where crossovers are going we know the Avengers are going to be headed toward the X-Men and Eternals for Judgment Day and of course we've already covered all of here and gillen's incredible work across multiple brilliant artists on his reimagining of the eternals so until next time keep those mutant lights lit keep those Krakoan gateways open we hope you guys enjoy this next segment and yeah you know i guess in some ways this is kind of like our gambit hollow cover you know i really wish i could just put out like a hollow variant but it's a paper shortage guys we got to be reasonable enjoy this last segment and thank you Hey, everybody, welcome back to an all new X's for podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, chronos skimming classics and immortal weapons. I'm Nico and you can find me being Fat Cobra all about it over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and Fat Cobra, everybody. It's a bear
2: dance. <laughs> and I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And I'm TK. You can find me on
1: Twitter and Instagram at xNateXGrayX dealing with my arachnophobia.
8: And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience because Lin Fang is here, and I don't think he's going to take any prisoners.
0: I am so excited to be here to talk about Iron Fist Number Four, brought to us by Alyssa Wong, Michael Yeag, J. David Ramos, and VCs Travis Lanham. And there are a number of beautiful covers. I want. I want To point out that, like, I don't want to be curmudgeonly about it, but sometimes when I see stuff like Fortnite cover, it does throw me off a little bit. I understand that we are living in an NFT world and we are all just non fungible girls, but I do sometimes get a little overwhelmed by the lack of what feels like foresight that goes into uh, kind of like the design. I understand that Fortnite sells, and so I guess there is a lot of thought that goes into it. But this is something that TK and I came across in our coverage of something similar that actually hasn't come out yet. So I'm sort of like blowing the load a little bit before anybody's even gotten their pants off yet. So it's a little bit interesting. But there is an issue of the Amazing Spider Girl that inexplicably sells about ten thousand copies more than any issue around it, and it's ultimately because number one, the issue contained the drawn-in winner of a contest, and number two, that it was a Marvel zombies variant and that is significant so i or at least it was then so i do sometimes think like these covers really you know they're they're thought out and they can really help a book sales but as an iron fist fan i sometimes just get sad that there's fewer like oh fuck so many cool iron fist related iron fist covers
1: but i do wonder about the potential for drumming up interest in a character like iron fist right now the possibility of crossing over iron fist character designs and the character designs that we're seeing for a lot of people in this book with Fortnite and getting more eyes on it you know yes it's very cynical to have to think about and dealing with transmedia cross promotional stuff often feels really icky especially to long term fans who are just kind of in this for the love of the story and the characters but if the interest in these characters especially and their really specific and unique styles was translated into a platform like Fortnite even if .0 One percent of the audience look at a character like Lin Lié and said that they wanted to know more and wanted to read more. That's thousands of new readers on this book potentially. So while in a lot of ways it bums me out and it can take me out of the element, I do have some hopes that it could lead to bigger things for a character like this that really feels like they're just starting what could be a big journey.
2: Yeah, Fortnite is pretty saturating in a lot of media. As a Magic the Gathering fan, there is actually a Fortnite set set to come out this year so yeah i'm very familiar with like you know trying to garner more fans in either direction and it's just as somebody who's already into the books it's very very exhausting sometimes takes me out of the world of the lore that i'm very you know interested in and then but then i have to think about it from like a marketing perspective well this is meant to garner new fandom and you just kind of got to accept it unfortunately Nowadays. So I was
8: into the kind of genre that Fortnite got its fame for. Like tangentially, when it hit its real peak and boom, those games really aren't for me. I have seen some people make some impressive things through whether it's through Fortnite or something else very similar. It's like, okay, no, it's pretty cool what you can actually do. So I understand all kinds of branding, all kinds of expansion of your fans, and being like, hey, many people really like this it's super popular and big let's reach out and let's do a collab and it's I understand all of that and you know at the end of the day people are trying to make money and people are trying to get more people to buy their product and there's nothing really wrong with that I don't blame any business for trying to do with to do what they need to do in terms of things that aren't shady and anti-consumer but it does create you know crossover and collaboration events that maybe water down some certain aspects and certain things that cannot be for everybody and it might make more older fans a little bit mad but at the end of the day, I think a lot of these collabs and a lot of these crossovers are really commonplace and they will continue to be commonplace because it's really easy when you have markets that could intersect where you're not competing with one another and it really only should highlight and benefit both or all parties involved.
0: And I love the discussion we're taking here is one of positive integration of multiple ideas leading to synergistic success. I'll be really honest. I am, yeah, as a big brick guy, I, you know. I feel like there's like two kind of a falls there's like collector a falls and there's like active participant a falls. And I feel like one of the things that kind of took me from just somebody who was like, let me buy some Lego to I do everything Lego. My entire home is filled with Lego. We are planning on going to Legoland this summer was the integration of Lego into things like my video games. You know, I love Lego games. And then the Marvel Lego games giving me an opportunity to play so many random characters, you know. I get to be Miguel. How often do I get to be Spider-Man 2099 in a game like that? So it's just really exciting. And I do see how the cross integration does lead to, you know, synergistic benefits, especially when one of the things that they're looking so actively to do in this iteration of Iron Fist is to culturally divorce Iron Fist from the Netflix iteration in so many ways. There is something so interesting about how I feel as though Iron Fist is synonymous with the concrete jungle of new york you know there's very little that can be avoided about the understanding of iron fist as somebody bound by city limits despite a mystic roamer's heart you know and like but here we're given an opportunity to sort of shed that because i believe what we have here is a bit more of a mystical character experiencing mystical things by removing iron fist from the city confines i think that we've created an opportunity to explore the ideas of the Iron Fist in new ways. How do you guys feel about the transformation of genre from mystic crime city noir to exciting high
2: fantasy? I do really enjoy the urban fantasy aspect of Danny Rand's Iron Fist, and I'm glad that we do get, you know, little soupçon aspects of the story here, but I am actually very happy. We're mostly uh, experiencing his experience in a more, I guess, fantasy realm first. Kind of nice that this is where we are we're, we're learning who he is you know in the context of his family ancestry I'm really enjoying that aspect and then I do I do hope that in the future we we graduate to a more urban fantasy setting again but I really like where we are right now personally so
1: that original concept of the Danny Rand Iron Fist as a street level hero a hero for hire that has never held much sway for me it's something like so many things I've been aware is how the character is put out there since early in my comic reading but I didn't read a lot of Iron Fist so that was never big to me and the character always kind of felt problematic so just was never a big character to me my big introduction to the mythological aspects of the Iron Fist universe was really when Kunlun started showing up in Avengers versus X-Men so already I'm like not super interested in the character that everybody knows my knowledge of the background really picks up with the much more mystical stuff and in wanting to see a piece of cultural appropriation rectified this book is just hitting all the notes for me in a number of ways it is putting an author that I absolutely love with a character that she did some amazing establishing work with to take us into this run which does that sort of reparative work and takes the character into a zone that I personally am kind of more familiar with out of anything associated with With Iron Fist. So for me, this is working on every level, but what I've been trying to pay attention to is does this feel like a sustainable direction for the character long term? And increasingly, as the book goes on, I really do feel like it is. I feel like Alyssa Wong is putting in the narrative work to ensure that we get really into Lee's look of the world and we don't sort of hunger to have Danny back. We get Danny in the Ways that we need him right now, but I see this book really trying to move away from the idea of Danny as Iron Fist and being very successful at doing so.
8: My Danny Rand, as we spoke about multiple other times, is him fighting Sabretooth with Colleen Wing, where he blinds him with the snow up in some mountains, and then fighting the X-Men and kind of kicking their butts until somebody throws some coleslaw on Storm and she summons a lightning bolt and everyone's like, aha, it was a big misunderstanding. That's my Danny Rand. Outside of that, Iron Fist was never really a character that specifically uh, spoke to me or really interests me in the sense that I I never really understood what made Danny Rand a special character. Why was Danny Rand Iron Fist? And I also kind of like the other members of the Defenders just a little bit more. I found them a little palatable for me in terms of where their stories were, who they are as characters, and their contributions to, you know, hero for higher street level heroes. I do enjoy Danny's relationship with Luke Cage. I think it's one of my favorite things in comics. I, I enjoy their friendship very much. So seeing them continually together here, driving, just makes me happy. I do appreciate and like that the mantle of Iron Fist was passed on to someone else, and I love that through this title we're getting a lot of mix of mythos for not only the Iron Fist, but for also Lin Li, and and all the things that he gets to do, and and his previous duties as Swordmaster, and how those are kind of coming back to bite him in the butt. I'm not as familiar with Chinese mythology. It's one that I do know about because there are such a large handful of shows that do incorporate aspects of Chinese legend and mythos into slight culture vernacular. I was a very big fan growing up of Jackie Chan Adventures, the animated cartoon where Jackie Chan voiced himself. Reading that Lin Lee was the wielder or of the sword of Fu Xi, Fu Shi was the brother of Nu Wa, who we get introduced to kind of like her champion through the martial artist woman who has the, who
0: had... Ji Shuang Shuang.
8: Yes. Fu Xi is the, the brother and husband of Nu Wa, and they're both credited. With cre- creation. So I like that we're expanding more into Chinese mythos through this story that I don't know if everybody would be as familiar with if you weren't taught in. It. It's not something you grew up with. So I'm very excited to see where that continues to go.
0: I love that there's now another sort of immortal weapon that kind of matches the sword in a way that there's also the immortal weapons that match the iron fist. That duality means that both sides of this complicated new life for Lin Lei, they both. Involve the sort of narrative of multiple people in these lineages. What did you guys think about the Gauntlet of Nuah and the introduction of even more characters to this already overflowing character list?
1: Yeah, I'm excited about the idea of the sacred weapons versus immortal weapons. And the word I keep coming back to is work. Alyssa is putting in work to flesh out two different mythoses and bring them together in in a lot of ways through a character who feels plausible as taking up the mantle, one of the most famous mantles in Marvel Canon, while coming from his own mantle as Swordmaster, that still is pretty important. And the introduction of Swordmaster was a significant moment in Marvel history. He's not a A-list character that everybody knows, but he has a really interesting background as Swordmaster, coming all the way up to that Death of Doctor Strange White Fox issue, which just to me really established that this is a a guy worth following and worth watching and then we get this story that tells us that iron fist the idea the corner of the marvel universe is worth paying attention to and here's a really good inroad that isn't a millionaire billionaire white guy so it's all just it all works and, you know just like the, the story is a really quality story but the effort that Alyssa wong is putting in to make this canon function in a way that other people will be able to pick up and write really great stories for this new Iron Fist that include his background as well. I think it's such a difficult undertaking and she's doing it with such grace, making me just want to read more every week.
8: Absolutely. I know that uh, it can feel at times having so many characters, you kind of lose a little bit of sense of who everybody is. But the way Alyssa writes, I, I do think that everybody feels distinct enough that even if these are characters that are just introduced for this, it does feel like, okay, I can still differentiate everybody. I can still understand who I'm really meant to be paying attention to and who's kind of just here just for this particular moment in the story. I find it so fascinating that I don't feel overwhelmed sensory wise with the amount of characters we are introduced to. Some are old, some are new, some are borrowed, some are blue. And I really enjoy and like, you know, all these characters that were being introduced to because I'm not familiar with so many of them. It is nice just to say like, here are these characters and they're kind of important to what's going on. And that's kind of just about it. Not everybody needs to be fully fleshed out for this particular story. I just find it so interesting that I don't feel overwhelmed with the amount of characters that are being shown or introduced in this.
0: And I think one of the things that makes that so important is so many books become so hyper inundated with characters instead of detailed characters. And by only focusing on a handful of characters in depth, I think Alyssa is really finding an area that not just allows her to thrive, but allows her to take what she is working with to the next level. But so much of that is possible thanks to the art on this. This issue. Now, I don't think that necessarily the third issue suffered from having so many artists, but I think it's hard for me not to notice the consistency on this issue. Being back to one penciler and one inker, it had a much more consistent feel. How do you guys feel about the art and how the visuals, this heavy use of green and the blue in the green at that, plays into the understanding of the bigger picture of Iron Fist? I think in a book like this that is
1: juggling a bunch of different characters, globetrotting, giving us a lot of new perspectives. Consistency really is key. I thought the third issue did a good job in accepting that because there couldn't be consistency, the way you would use other artists should be strategic. And, you know, in no way not that issue, but in this one, because we have a consistent style all the way through, we are able to really take in all of the characters without confusion and understand the settings really well. And we do get introduced to new people every single issue in this. So it's important to have really stark stylistic choices and thankfully you know of the old characters that we get introduced to here in the other Immortal Weapons they are so stylistically distinct that there's no chance that we're going to kind of get them confused but it really has to be rendered in a way that's compelling as well and that's been another challenge of this book that it has met at every point which is each character is really done justice and made to stand out in a way that doesn't confuse Used because there's a really clear hierarchy. We have our protagonists. A lot of the people in Kunlun do have a very NPC vibe to them where there are some NPCs that you see a lot and they need to have a really distinct style. And some are just kind of background villagers, but how they're used and what they say can be really important. You just have to know how to balance everything. And this book is striking that balance artistically. For sure.
0: Just to kind of comment on what you're saying, that blue and green are both associated with the same thing in Chinese culture, which 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 is the element of wood and the direction of East. They are also associated with the same element of heavenly ideas. And if Kunlun is one of the five capital cities of heaven, it would make a lot of sense that blue and green are kind of relied on heavily here. Additionally, there are cultures which treat blue and green as one color with two shades. So it is of note that I think a lot of the maybe leaning into a richer green could be attempting to, Connect could be attempting to connect a little bit more culturally to the Chinese roots of the book. What do you guys think about the use of the art and color here in this issue between the redesign with these richer colors and the more streamlined art team?
8: So, I personally love the art direction. I think the coloring on this book has been top notch from, you know, head to toe, start to finish. I really love the brightness and like the really stand out ways that the color is used to really pop off the page. And it's I think it really is a great benefit to this amazing story that has these really bright colors that really help get this story off the page and really into the minds of the readers of like what's going on and really helping them visualize and get the best idea of like, okay, this is exactly how it's supposed to be happening. Color theory is such a fascinating topic, and I imagine there can be episodes upon episodes that could be done just talking about the X Men alone and comics in general about how color is used to d- differentiate and say certain things. And I also love learning about what different cultures ascribe to certain colors. Like I find it fascinating and it is so wonderful to be able to learn about where different meanings come from and why certain things are done a certain way and so on. And I'm really interested to see if there is some color theory at work in trying to hint to a reader of what exactly is what is going on and what's not being seen here. Any artistic medium that's visual you can hide a lot of different elements and things in ways where you have to kind of be looking for in order to really understand the kind of the, the, those hidden messages so I'm really excited to see if there are some hidden messages due to the, the way things are colored and the specific colors that were chosen would signify.
2: I will admit that I actually didn't really know or realize that the colors blue and green were so symbolic within Chinese culture so that completely went over my head I admit, but now that you're saying that, I've been looking through it and it is so prominent. I'm like astounded it went over my head. I love the art in this book. It keeps me very invested in the story and I I'm like kind of blown away that I did not notice the color saturation as you guys said.
0: Oh no, you're good because I'm going to bring us kind of thoroughly through the issue. One of the things that has been so predominant through this story has been the fight sequences are little more than a means to an end and an opportunity to showcase beautiful art rather than getting lost in now i have the upper hand now i have the upper hand now i have the upper hand because not everybody's a fucking jedi you know what i mean these characters just get to showcase beautiful fighting sequences in clear linear ways that move from point a to point b instead of getting lost in the over design of it instead relying on beautiful and well illustrated moments of fighting that said i kept thinking there's no way like as i approached the final pages, there's just no fucking way that there can only be one issue left. Like, the two brothers are so completely at odds, and there's so little time left, and so then I turn the page, and I look at the cover of number five, and it's fucking Loki! It's fucking Loki! That is fucking Loki on the cover of number five, just like it's Loki on the cover of Legion of X number three, just like, it's, it's fucking Loki!
1: That was my exact first thought, just like on the cover of Legion of X number three. What is going on with Loki right now? Are we having a surreptitious Loki event that we didn't realize?
0: Are we gonna find out that Asgardians are all mutants? Are or that Asgardians
1: that- like, are secretly also masquerading as like some part of the same mythos that Yu comes from?
0: Yeah, I-, I gotta know, but I kept thinking there isn't enough time to finish this and then, nope, it's fucking Loki. And it got me thinking immediately
1: about Feng as a kind of trickster character. As we've talked about him in the past, we're still not really clear, like if he's gonna End up being a bad guy, or if he's like a violent, mischief causing rapscallion who we're going to constantly need to be like, You shouldn't have the sword, you do murders. But you know, he loves his brother. He's giving me a little bit of Loki vibe. So, what an interesting time to get Loki in the mix.
8: What if Loki's like Namor and that he's a mutant Asgardian in the sense that Namor is still an Atlantean, but he's a mutant Atlantean? Like, he has the X gene, but that doesn't affect anything. Yeah, I mean, I've I heard
2: it. weirder. Yeah, a thousand percent. I'm unsure how I feel about that. I don't really love that idea only because I just don't know how well that would actually be treated in terms of like, I don't know, I guess, you know, that that gives him a, a whole nother level of minority status that I feel would just be plastered onto him. And it, I already kind of eye roll whenever I see Loki. I'm excited to see where this story goes, but... uh Honestly, I don't really like him, so Mundys can keep him.
0: I like your use of the Mundys in referring to one of the eldritch gods of the Marvel Universe.
2: Indeed. he's a fair minimum an
0: alien also uh not human at all He is a frost giant but I, I i oh yeah so he would be a mutant frost giant wouldn't he
2: yes he would be a mutant frost giant he
0: yeah okay a Jotan, i'm a mutant jotun i'm here for it you know he's he's yoten and proud so uh,
8: i i also wonder if the inclusion because loki's kind of just been making his rounds everywhere he's kind of like bothering everybody now at this point he's like i'm done with asgard right now i'm bothering everybody on earth and i uh, he's His utilization has been pretty strong in a lot of different titles. And I wonder if part of that is due to the success of the Loki TV show. They're trying to put Loki in kind of every cookie jar they can. I think Loki would try to take a cookie from every single cookie jar and he'd get away with it because he's a trickster god. But I do find it fascinating that there is this kind of resurgence and multitude of appearances of Loki just kind of messing with everybody.
2: Yeah, but then that's kind of the thing that drives me crazy. It's kind of why I have like Wolverine burnout out because he's everywhere and that's kind of what loki's become to me and i'm totally at peace if i'm the only one who feels
0: that way i think one of the things about it is that with all of the phoenix mother 1 million bc thor stuff that we know is connected through eternals that we know is still occurring in avengers forever that we know is occurring in avengers so that puts jason aaron and two the two avengers titles plus kieran gillen on the eternals title all connected. Connected to the idea of phoenix and odin as members of avengers 1 million bc alongside the fist so there actually is precedent for oh and the books of the phoenix in Kunlun. so there really is a lot of precedence for the sort of almost romantic fond interplay that the marvel universe is allowing itself at this point in its career you know i really think i would love it if we found out as guardians are just like as guardians are to mutants as Iraqi are to mutes I'd be fucking fine with that to be really honest with you not because everything's a mutant but because why is why is it's not mutant has never really been a thing like that there has been magic with mutants and science that can turn on and off mutant genes since it began and it's never really been the pristine thing people want it's only ever been at times ever pieces of what's some people want. And there actually is, to me, something deeply elevating of taking the mutants and putting them on the level of Asgardians and Deviants and Eternals and Inhumans. You're talking about things that are God-tier that have, you know, Regent caveat about them. Let's elevate the mutants to God-tier and give them regency instead of looking at it like, great, now something else is fucking connected to the mutants. No, great. The mutants are just like the eighth house of Earth. Great. Good for them.
2: I guess my question is like isn't that what the Krokoan era is about already like aren't they already being then elevated just give us the words. to and then, then do yeah, it i mean you're then absolutely elevate. right then say same as asgard <laughs> but but aren't we there already like i feel like we're there already i feel like you're no, right I, still think, I think that we have still the, had the minority words.
0: they're yeah. still the minority island they real okay. and like i'm with you i'm with I you said. we are on the same fucking
6: you're page
2: right. i think i'm like completely on board actually i know exactly I can't what this you mean and we do need the actual <laughs> words but I feel bad because we started talking about Ekman. No, no, this is, this is an important discussion. This is a really important
0: discussion. TK, Jonah, you have to weigh in. This is an important discussion.
1: I absolutely take your point. I think it makes total sense. I do recognize the sensitivity of the fandom and how important minority metaphor contained within the mutant experience really is. And I think sometimes when we get into what defines a mutant or, you know, somebody like the high evolutionary comes around for a storyline and plays around with the X gene and what makes mutants different there's always this fear of like are you going to screw up the metaphor such that the catharsis that I often feel reading X books when something comes up that reflects my minority experience and I can kind of process through reading this are you going to write some like weird silly sci-fi fantasy story that screws up my internal ability to do that and I think as fans especially who many of us have been enjoying these books for decades, it's really important to recognize that even when somebody comes in with a really silly storyline that lays down some continuity that might really color your present experience of the mutant metaphor. This is all mutable. Your headcanon is really important. It's still really possible to experience that sort of processing work when a story is being written that might feel like the plot details get screwy with the metaphor. You do kind of sometimes just have to let these things happen they always return to a baseline in which you can use the stories to process the way that you need to nothing is ever written so far to the extreme that suddenly the mutants literally become gods and now the minority metaphor never works anymore because everybody is part of a pantheon it's never going to go that crazy but to flirt with the idea of godhood for the minority actually will help you to take the, the metaphor to another place and to find new ways to sort of process so I I love everything that you guys are talking about. You know the interplay of all of these zones of Marvel personhood and godhood have been having kind of a renaissance of new stories being told and new ways of looking at things. And it hasn't affected my love of the X Men. It has only kind of made me love new things like this Iron Fist story. And I'd love to see these amazing authors play around with these big idea groundworks that are being.
2: I agree with that. I I think that part of my own personal issue with characters like Loki being brought into, like, the mutant status is that then he gets inserted in storylines, which, you know, fair because people love him, but then because people love him and because they insert him more and more, it takes Spotlight away from other characters, other newer characters, other minority characters, and it just kind of, like, it, it becomes, like, an issue of, like, replacement.
0: Are you saying that you won't settle for another vaguely heteronormative white queer as your diversity representation? Anymore? I don't know. That sounds a little too aggressive. (laughs)
2: I mean, beyond beyond him being, uh, I guess, quote unquote queer, which I don't I mean, necessarily like, know if I with that. <laughs> canonically queer, like touches dudes, into dudes, likes to, dudes. How many stories has that actually happened in, though? Like, has he actually on panel done that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, I accept. If that has happened on panel, I will gladly accept that. And I, guess I would I... really be glad if it
0: doesn't go far, that far back, because if you go that far back, He's sort of like a creepy child murdering oh, rapist. Yeah. No, and no, so, I agree like, with I you would know, rather sure. that be the less gay stuff.
2: I'm absolutely good with like even more like modern uh, with specifically modern portrayals of that with him. But but he's we still don't have that many characters in Marvel, despite grander. Yeah, Fox I News' guess. Is
0: best opinion, yeah. Yes.
2: It's always been a hard pill for me to swallow his his queerness because I personally have never read stories with him where it's been very very like evident I guess so and maybe that's just a, an issue with myself and my relationship with him in the books and I just I guess I just need to dig deeper but it would be nice to have you know not even just you know queer representation but more people of color on the maybe sometime like risk maybe who's cuban and also indigenous maybe
0: I'm gonna just pass it to iron fit I mean <laughs> not Jonah. I hear
8: what you're saying Steven and that's I think a concern that it's not that Loki can't be a bunch of ladies. Labels, whether they're meant to be whether Loki was representative of a minority group. Marvel does tend to have a habit of using and reusing the same characters to show their diversity over and over. and it doesn't feel as diverse if it's the same characters. It's not to say that Loki representing many things is a bad thing, but it does feel like the pool uh, of diversity does um, dry up a little bit, especially when you're not showing characters, who are also diverse and can also represent different things. When it's just like, oh, people will buy Loki, throw Loki into it. And exactly. I do yeah. That Marvel tends to have that problem a little bit. I, I imagine that they are working towards trying to create more inclusivity and more diversity and show and ranging the characters they do showcase when they do want to showcase their diversity. All that being said, Loki is a fascinating villain to now be thrown into this because now Loki is a very interesting monkey wrench, and that Loki can mean anything. Loki could be an antagonist. Loki could be a hero. Loki could just show up and just start eating popcorn and have like opera glasses and go, I can't wait to see what this is all about. And uh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm really interested to see where Alyssa is going to take Loki. I I also can tell Alyssa kind of likes problematic brothers. So (laughs) I imagine it's going to, we're going to be in for a very good time when it comes to whatever the hell Loki is doing here.
2: Indeed, I did feel like Fat Cobra was slightly out of character this issue am i the only one who who felt like that
1: i don't have enough conception of fat cobra's character to agree or disagree
2: that is absolutely fair it could just be my reading and my adoration for him and he's kind of slightly antagonistic in this so
0: yeah you know perhaps he is usually a shade of playfully aggressive oh that yeah came off yeah. assertively antagonistic here uh, you know he never seemed like he was gonna hurt anybody but he definitely
2: had an edge I I vibe yeah like he made he made Linley like he made him bleed <laughs> through the mouth like like I felt that you know
0: yeah okay I can see where you're coming from I perhaps don't think to him punching an immortal weapon in the face that hard is such a big deal because it's an immortal weapon and that's what they do in tournaments and training but it does feel like because we know he's kind of just like a kid who's had these powers for like a month oh my god stop beating him in the head
2: you're absolutely right that is a very good point i'm just happy to have more fat cobra so i i will take whatever i could get to be quite honest with you i will say that i was totally squicked out by all the spiders in this issue because also in the arachnophobia club here but other than that i just i would love to see more of all the immortal weapons so i hope we get I hope we get more of them in the next issue.